I mean, I do wear I do wear that robe, and I am out on the balcony. Okay, Uh, it was just (laughs) he had a very specific idea that he thought would be funny, and I like a fool went along. (laughs) I love that. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by one of the most delightful voices in BC media, a critically acclaimed and national award-winning journalist. Hailing from our province's capital, Victoria, BC, he boasts an impressive resume working for NBC during the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics, the Vancouver Sun and the province, the TAI, and Global News. Toronto Star columnist Heather Malik called him one of the CBC's greatest minds. He even helped Mr. Dressup get his star in Canada's Walk of Fame. Of course, you know him as a superstar with data, creating incredible lists from ranking every craft brewery in Metro Vancouver to ranking every Heritage Minutes historical short. You know you've made it if he throws shade at you on Twitter. He is the municipal affairs reporter for CBC Vancouver covering local political stories throughout British Columbia. He is Justin McElroy. Justin, how are you? You you recapped the last decade of my life pretty well right (laughs) (laughs) That's what I aim to do. I tried to really hype up the guests and convey why I'm excited to have them on. You you did your research. That's the important (laughs) part of the gig, right? (laughs) You make it easy for me because... I'm such a big fan of your work. I'm very honored that you're here, so thank you. Hey, hey, you're very kind. I always say, when people say that, it's like, I'm so grateful to work for a company and to work with bosses that let me do the stuff that I do, because I'm fully aware, you know, I have a lot of freedom, uh, and and I do a lot of things that not every journalist uh, in this province or country gets to do, Uh, Mm -hmm. and I'm just always grateful and slightly bemused that people enjoy it so much. And you're with a company that is okay with you having a naming rights issue with another Justin McElroy. <laughs> the other, it, it is, I'm, it, the funny thing about the other Justin McElroy, you know, world famous podcaster yes. now, is that I remember when I was like, you know when you're 13 or 14 and you Google your name for the first time to mm-hmm. see who are the other people out there? And when I did that for the first time, it's like, okay, there's this journalist for a West Virginia community newspaper, and that's the most famous person out there. And then as time went on, it's like, then uh, he becomes a video game journalist, and then, you know, he does these podcasts, and now he's this huge thing, and sort of like step by step, I've always been seven steps behind him. (laughs) And uh, so... He's older than you, though. He's he's got a head start, so you never know. And he's in America, but it's like the weird DMs I get from his fans, (laughs) the strange uh, sort of requests that, that I get sometimes. It's, you know, someone will follow me and they live in North Dakota and it's like, let me just see the last five people they followed. Yeah, he followed the wrong Justin. Um, You have a lot of followers. He has many, many, many more. Um, (laughs) But it's, uh, you know, it's a nice way of, no, I will always be the second most famous Justin McElroy. Yeah. And I'm fully at peace with that because he's such a delightful Justin as well. Did you follow his career as you grew up? A little bit, just in the sense of... uh, you know, you see, you see his name out there, right? Mm-hmm. I was into video games, right? I was going right. to Polygon where he was writer, uh, and then just when people would start messaging me accidentally, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there was this one time uh, where. 
basically he got a news tip for like a body in a sewer hole in Vancouver and he had to message me uh, <laughs> just this very terse one line hello I live near the body that is down the sewer hole on Hastings and you know around the PNE yeah and uh, so we've developed this weird I like to say it's like I'm one of those secondary characters in The Simpsons in the McElroy podcast world, <laughs> where it's like I show up every like few months as just the one-note character, and their fans really enjoy the crossover. Sure, yeah. I love that. Now, my buddy, Colin Sharp, mm-hmm. he hosted your 30th birthday. Yes, he did. And I heard... <laughs> That the other Justin McElroy actually made an appearance. Yes. So beyond DMs. Yes. No, well, what, what happened was my friends were t- trying to f- figure out it was a roast. And, uh, you know, a bunch of good friends were, you know, doing seven minutes of mocking to me <laughs> and at a time. And they were figuring out what's one way we could make it great. Mm. And so they messaged the other Justin. It's like, hey, we've seen you interact a couple times. Would you be up for doing this little mini roast as well? And he said... <laughs> Sure. And he looked in the camera and uh, said, uh, Justin, I just have one piece of advice for you. Change your name. <laughs> Change your name. It could be Jason or... Ch- and it was just this great, f- f- funny riff. And so, yeah, no, it, it's a very amusing little side plot of always knowing that, uh, all right, he's there and I'm going to get confused, but there are way where, if you're going to share a name with someone, someone that neat and unique and uh, kind is a heck of a person to have. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. One last thing on this. Mm -hmm. You have JustinMcElroy.com. He has at JustinMcElroy on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Who scooped up the TikTok rights? (laughs) I have no understanding of TikTok, so that is free. He's probably got it. That is free for his domain if he wants it. I love it. Well, I am here to discuss some of your reporting, Mm -hmm. and I appreciate you being here. We recorded a mini episode in May, and we discussed COVID and BC's response and Mm -hmm. how we were so great at containing this pandemic. And BC did have a lot of initial success. Mm -hmm. It's been a few months since you and I chatted. And I just want you to recap for me exactly why we were so successful in those initial months. And you talked about this idea of a Jedi mind trick that the government of BC and provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, pulled off. So can you just explain the first few months of the crisis and how we were doing well. Yeah, and it's important to remember that it's you can't say with something like this, all right, it's 100% because of A, B, and C, because mm. we don't know exactly when or in what situations uh, a virus is spread. And it's important to remember that we did get lucky in a lot of ways in British Columbia that we didn't have any sort of super spreader events, regardless of what we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, you know, yeah, there were things that the province did initially in February and March and April in terms of their policies with long-term healthcare centers, in terms of quickly getting an integrated team on board of dealing with COVID, in terms of testing more per capita very much early on uh, to help reduce uh, the spread in the community. And then this general, you know, they never called it a lockdown. Uh, They never put in extremely harsh measures of how many people could gather in one place. But they sort of gently coerced 
everyone in the province to reduce their contacts by about 80% for, mm-hmm. you know, the, a week and then three weeks and five weeks and, and seven weeks. Uh, and it was very successful. And the more that our numbers went down, the more people were able to sort of gently buy into this. And mm-hmm. the more at a certain point that we began to celebrate how well we were doing. And then the full summer happened. And <laughs> yeah, when we talked in May, we were right at the beginning of sort of what I call like the boring chart period right. of uh, of COVID and the province. And now we've gone from 10 cases a day to 20 to 40 to 80. Uh, it seems to be plateauing a bit right now, but it should shows that you can't slack off with this virus mm-hmm. just the nature of it the lack of vaccine the fact that it never has gone away you know the province made their deliberate decision we're not trying to we're not going to try and be like new zealand we're not going to try and get down to zero cases we're going right. to have to live with it consistently but we want it to be at this manageable level uh and uh, collectively you know we failed at that for a few weeks, right? And mm-hmm. we're now seeing the, the attempts to get it under wraps. We're now seeing bigger penalties being put in place for people if uh, they host large parties. We hear the province actually talking about significant punishments for the first time. So it's a new. And that's the interesting yes. point, right? Because at the start, even though there were all these suggestions and protocols of social distancing or physical mm-hmm. distancing, there weren't actually any enforcements or punishments, right? And that was the Jedi mind trick. Yeah, that we could do this. You know, there were people calling for it a lot, right? Mm-hmm. They were saying, we need to shut everything down. We need to basically have bullhorns at English <laughs> Bay and Kids Beach to get people from not distancing. And the province said, no, we're going to encourage collective positive action. We're going to think about a community of what we can do for all of us. And it seemed to be working. Uh, and when it doesn't, right, the, to me, the interesting question is not was the province lucky or not in those first three months. But all right, now that we're shifting tactics, will people collectively move along with those and respond to those sort of negative incentives in Mm, a sense? You know, will the threat of these fines make people not do house parties? And then secondly, will it work? Because at the end of the day, there was a demonstrable effect of how quickly we fell off with the number of cases, with the number of hospitalizations, with how long we were static for, that the province's original strategy did work for a while. Will this new one work? We have to see the numbers, right? Why do you think the numbers did spike? And I asked this, obviously, knowing that you know no answer will completely explain it, but you are on this beat. Why do you think the numbers suddenly went up to... 80 cases a day. Obviously, we loosened restrictions, Mm -hmm. but did we also kind of get complacent and, you know, the sun came out and we decided, oh, well, we can kind of act like it's normal? Yeah, and it is some of that. And, you know, while some, I hear some people in their 20s and 30s getting defensive over the province saying it's primarily young people, right? And it's a, a lot of partying and saying, well, there's more to it than that. And uh, sometimes they have jobs that they're forced to go to and they mm-hmm. can't practice fake, safe physical distancing there. The, the data backs up that it wasn't for those first 
four, five, six weeks of the creep up, it wasn't because of any increase of cases with 40-somethings or 50-somethings or 60-somethings or 70-somethings. Mm-hmm. It was very much in that 20 to 40 pocket. And, uh, you know, I am by no means a hip person in my 30s. But You're I very could, hip. Sure, Come sure, on. We'll go with that. But I could, <laughs> but I could you know, I started to d- detect and I could see on social media just people being a little bit looser, right? Mm-hmm. A little bit more relaxed of, you know, myself, it's like I haven't hung out in a friend's house since this began, period. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I could see other people starting to do that. And you yeah. start to tell yourself, well, it's 10 cases a day. It's not anywhere. I'm fine. And you have enough people with that attitude for enough weeks that you can start to have those cases, right? And those can start to spread. And right. I think collectively as a province, we didn't really change our behavior. You didn't really see a whole lot of people saying we need to stand back a little bit and reduce contacts when we went to 20. We saw it a little bit when it was at 25, 30. Uh, But then, you know, the horse is out of the barn, right? And (laughs) we're seeing what we're seeing right now. We have to go back to how we used to talk about it. What we're seeing right now is based on behavior two weeks ago. Right. So mm, right. we've started to, you know, collectively get very anxious again and, and worry last week once we got over the 70 and 80 step mark. It's going to be another week and a half to see whether the steps people have taken since then has had an effect. One would imagine they might. But again, it's you have to always wait for the data to prove whether your hypotheses are correct two weeks in the future. Yeah. And given how anxious everyone is around this it can be very difficult. Why did they open up clubs? <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> because is, that's, I mean, we're talking yeah. about that age group, right? Mm-hmm. And opening up clubs signals to that age group, like, hey, everything's all right. Yes. And I know that the bartenders were protected. I haven't been in one. I've only seen Instagram stories. Yes. But it looks like the bartenders are protected. But otherwise, it looked like a normal club. And, and it's hard because, like, I honestly don't know. Uh, and it's one of those t- things where, t- frankly, I would like an honest conversation with a government official that doesn't have three layers of spin. Where, <laughs> because casinos aren't allowed to open. Yeah. Right? Uh, movie theaters for the longest time were still not allowed to, to open. And mm-hmm. if they were, there were very strict rules. And yet it seemed for clubs and also just generally bars, uh, they went, if you if you pinky swear that it's going to be fine, <laughs> then all right, all right. And we, yeah, and we saw a lot of this came from clubs. We heard uh, Mm -hmm. early on in late June, early July, when it was starting to spread up, uh, uh, number five orange as well, right? That's right. And it's just these places where it's extremely difficult to enforce physical distancing and alcohol is sort of an inevitable part of the situation. Mm -hmm. The government made their choice. They're they're still making their choice in some ways here. And, uh, you know, Time will tell whether it's the right one. We've been able to be fortunate in BC because cases are so low to give a lot of praise to people like Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix. But if these sorts of incidents keep happening and they're still responsible for a lot of rising cases and responsible for 2,500 people being in self-isolation, right? Mm-hmm. You do have to start uh, saying, well, maybe there were things they could have done better. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll get to Dr. Bonnie Henry in a second. Mm-hmm. 
But one thing I'm also seeing is that, yes, case levels are going up, but the deaths and the hospitalizations are still staying relatively low, probably because, as you said, the case levels are going up within this 20 to 30 demographic. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of commentators here and in other places where cases are up, but deaths and hospitalizations are low. People going, hey, you know what? This isn't a big deal. The real number is about deaths. The real number is about hospitalizations. That's what we should be looking at. This case number stuff, it's kind of a distraction. What's your take on that? And I guess my take would be that there were people in America saying that in May and June when cases in states like Florida and Texas and California were going up quite a bit, but hospitalizations and deaths hadn't happened yet and Mm -hmm. saying, look, there's not a lot to worry about here. And then you fast forward a month or two and then there is a heck of a lot to be worried (laughs) about, right? Like this this is a situation where erring on the side of caution given how many people around the world have died, given 200 people even in British Columbia have died, Mm -hmm. is one that is very warranted, I think. And uh, yeah, we certainly have more than enough evidence at this point to know that if you're under 30, if you're under 40, if you're under 50, even and in good health, it's very rare that you're going to have at this point long-term consequences. But we're still learning more about how, you know, the longer term as well that it can happen for people. Mm -hmm. And we know that it can spread as well quite easily if you're living with older parents and you're asymptomatic for a few days. So, you know, I get the impulse for people to, especially because we were told early on hospitalizations and deaths, Mm -hmm. that is something that the province is really focusing on when it comes to, to try and contain this. At the same time, we know that this is a lagging indicator, uh, and at this point, you know, we've been extremely lucky that there's been seven, eight hundred more cases of COVID over the past three, two, three weeks, and mm-hmm. there hasn't been a rise in hospitalizations yet. Will that continue? Again, it, it's difficult to say. Uh, we're starting to see already an increase in cases among people in their 40s and 50s and Mm. 60s again for the first time in months. So we'll have to see. I think that's the thing. It spreads, Mm -hmm. right? Like more cases will mean more hospitalizations eventually. You you would think. And if it, you know, if it doesn't, right, uh, and we are extremely fortunate, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if fortunate is the right word per se, (laughs) but, you know, if uh, if it is the case where we dodged this large bullet and the hundreds of new people that have gotten COVID don't have to go to the hospital and deaths remain low, then I think the reaction for that is extreme gratefulness rather than a see, we were right all along. <laughs> Young people should have been allowed to party and be in clubs. Yeah, no, and that's a great point. And one thing I want to stress, and I know the data isn't there for it yet, but we had a fellow Vancouver Twitterati Kyla Lee on the show, Mm -hmm. and she was talking about the lingering effects of her Mm -hmm. COVID-19 diagnosis, where she would still feel symptoms weeks after the fact, get checked out, get tested, showing negative. And like any new disease, we don't know what the long-term repercussions are going to be. So I think it's very easy to be in your 20s and 30s and think, you know what, if I get it, I get it. But we should really be thinking, I don't want to get it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think like, just as a baseline yeah. and, to, and to not, you know, belittle or undercut people who are extremely worried. You know, one thing mm-hmm. uh, me and my friends say regularly because, you know, we 
try and have lives in some cases and organize things outside but it's mm-hmm. like everyone has their own comfort level yeah. and anxiety level and it's so important that we respect that for everyone in our lives and mm-hmm. so if there's a young person in your life I'm sounding like Bonnie Henry now <laughs> <laughs> that you know wants to be no. <laughs> um, uh, but if there Can is we do the rest of this section the interview like yeah, that no, you'll be Adrian and I'll <laughs> yeah. be uh, Dr. Henry but if there if there are young people in your life that are worried and have heard about uh, th- these effects and don't want to be anywhere near their spread can be happening. I think the only responsible response is to fully respect that. Absolutely. On the topic of Dr. Bonnie Henry, mm-hmm. is she no longer a hero? I like her, mm-hmm. and it, so that's not my opinion. I barely comment on COVID stuff online. And I know that Twitter is a bubble and everything else, but I don't comment on COVID-related stuff online because I'm a dummy and I can't justify having an opinion <laughs> mm-hmm. on public health when there are much smarter people looking at this and giving proper advice. But just online, even with some people that I know, I've started to see people question Dr. Henry and start to be a little more critical of her, including on little stuff, mm-hmm. whether you call it little or not, going back to the clubs issue. Yeah. There are issues that are coming up where people are like, why didn't she do this? Or why isn't she doing that? Do you think the public opinion is changing on her? Uh, somewhat, right? I mean, there was a huge amount of even international praise given to That's her, right? right? Yeah. Uh, and I think for fair reason, you know, I would talk to doctors and epidemiologists across the country about what BC was doing, and they would all point to, yes, Dr. Henry's experience and mm-hmm. the strategies she's put in have been objectively very good, and BC's numbers were very good, and it's fair to, to do that, and, you know, we live in an age where Everyone can express their adulation, and we had ballads, and we had posters. Uh, there were pins. I bought a pin. To, you did, uh, of course, did. you did. Yeah. <laughs> and, but by the same token, you know, one part of the online discourse is when someone gets too high, there's an impulse to tear them down as mm. well, right? And I think that's part of what's at play here too. I think there's people who have disagreed. I know there's people who have disagreed with the province's strategy all along on this and are looking at the rise of cases now and saying, look, I told you so. Mm-hmm. We should have been doing this or that. You know, it's going to be so many experts. Yeah, <laughs> online <laughs> perish the thought. But it's it's going to you know it's going to be years until uh, COVID is fully dealt with in the best case scenario, and there's a vaccine and it's no longer virus part of our lives based on everything we know. And so it's going to be years until we can fully tell the story of how was British Columbia's response yeah. at the six, seven, eight month mark. I think you can look at everything in totality and say it's still being very good. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at uh, uh, deaths per capita, BC still ahead of basically everywhere, every American state, but Hawaii still ahead of Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, still ahead of everywhere in Europe, except essentially the Czech Republic and Greece. Hmm. Uh, There's a lot to be fortunate about. Uh, At the same time, it's like, is it as good now as it was a month ago? Certainly not. Uh, 
is it helpful to constantly go to, you know, is Bonnie Henry the greatest human on earth or a mere mortal? <laughs> I think it's less germane, but yeah. the internet is, the internet makes people into things all the time and sure. then makes them into something else. Yeah. Why can't we just mandate masks? Is it the enforcement part of it? Is it a constitutional issue? Because I do wonder why the government just doesn't come out and say, you know what, if you're in public or if you're in a public indoor setting, mm-hmm. well, you have to wear a mask. They can say it on transit, apparently. I mean, they could they could do it everywhere, right? The question for these things comes down to enforcement, right? Uh, and are you going to arrest 300 people in a crowded mall who uh, aren't abiding by this? And the government made their calculation very early on that it wasn't worth it to have an enforcement, right? Mm. And again, because the numbers were down, they were validated in that in a sense. Uh, but we've also seen many other jurisdictions in Canada now put in more broad mask uh, enforcement policies, and their numbers seem to be doing pretty decent right now. So it's tough, right? And I think the government and I think uh, Dr. Henry has an overriding philosophy that we're all pretty aware of at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that, you know, you tweak on the sides, but you may not, uh, you know, you don't switch things wholesale. And we've seen they've been very reluctant all along to have any sort of large edicts on masks because they don't want to cause sort of these conflicts and anxieties if people aren't wearing a mask in a certain place place or, right. or, or what have you. So it does sound it's like the feasibility of enforcing a mandate like that is what's at stake. Yeah. And uh, I think it's the feasibility. I think it's the question of, you know, originally part of it was there weren't enough masks, period, right? True. And they did, yeah. they, they did not <laughs> want to cause a shortage yeah. when there were medical uh, professionals who badly needed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to see if it's three, four weeks from now and we're not at 80 cases a day, but we're at 120 or 160, uh, things might change. But for now, you know, a lot of energy online is often talked about, why won't the government do this thing, right? (laughs) And ultimately, it's, you know, and I deal with this with local politics all the time, right? Where people want to talk about, uh, you know, the government should be doing Y. And it's like, yeah, the government said they were going to do X and they were elected on X and they've been doing X for four or five months. So why would you expect them to change unless there was something very, very, you know, all all the evidence was pointed in one way. And right now, because of where BC has been, uh, they've been able to argue fairly persuasively that it's not necessary Mm. as a mandatory measure. Sure. We're in late August as we record this. I'm just curious what you think about where we go from here. Is it on the table that we retract back to phase two or maybe even phase one, or we go back to more people working from home in the in the workplace, maybe schools opening up, but then, you know, being back online. Where do you think we go from here? Yeah, it's tough, right? And everyone's anxious about the fall and the winter because we know we're going to be cooped up. And that's uh, flu season. We, it's flu season. Uh, I don't know if you know that in Vancouver, it rains a lot. Uh, <laughs> makes it hard to <laughs> constantly go outside. But we And we've heard 
since the beginning of this global pandemic, it's probably going to get worse in the fall and winter, right? Yeah, so second everyone, wave. Yeah, and so everyone's wondering how that works. And the government has been trying to put in a framework for all these industries that is flexible, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's why so many workplaces have been in this partial return to work for a while as well. And even when the numbers were quite low in June and early July, weren't pressing down the gas pedal to have a full return. We have to be flexible and we have to live with this uncertainty of not knowing exactly mm -hmm. how this global virus that we're only in you know year number one still of dealing with is going to react to a first winter so could we go back to stage two or one maybe I'm, you would have to talk to the government more to get a sense of how they may not call it that but they may tweak things on the sides right right um uh, they want to be in a situation where people are decently adaptable and they can make these switches if need be mm -hmm. without wholesale changes and wholesale revolt. So that's why we have sort of these broad guidelines in so many places instead of these firm edicts. Yeah. And whether that will work in the winter, you know, everyone is doing their best educated guesses, right? And I think it's easy for you know, bachelors like us, mm -hmm. I do worry for people who have kids, yeah. for parents. It's really funny. I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, you know, do an episode on what school's going to look like in the fall and, and how the protocols are going to work. And it interests me. But the more I look into it, I go, this thing is so fluid. I could do something one week, and then the next week it's going to be completely obsolete. It, it's so fluid. And also, like, I can't I, – I have the same thing, right, where people want to, to chat about the school policies. And I go, like, like you said, I live alone. I don't have kids. Mm -hmm. I can't ever put myself fully in that situation to, to understand it. I can understand the numbers and tell you sort of where things seem to be going and why. Mm -hmm. um, but – I can't tie that to the specifics of a school setting and all the different scenarios the province has laid out school district by mm -hmm. school district and the collective comfort levels of a thousand parents for one school. And it's extremely tricky. Yeah. And <laughs> even, even when cases, when school returned for those two or three weeks in June and cases were very, very low, there were still a lots of uh, issues and lots mm -hmm. of parents who were uncomfortable and I think what was the return rate for students in June it was quite low right it, it varied where it was around I th th think it was 50 60 70 percent okay. something th like that uh, but yeah it certainly wasn't universal yeah. and you know the government has their own data showing that it's like kids not being in school causes all sorts of issues as well so of yeah it's it's one of those things where people are going to want straightforward answers and we're just not in a position to do that given the nature of this pandemic. And that is so hard for everyone involved. It's hard for parents. It's hard for teachers. It's hard for kids. But if you can tell me a simple answer of how we get a school situation that works uh, and is repeatable, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're a smarter man than I or most people in the government. <laughs> I don't think it exists right now. No. I don't think it's possible. 
I want to shift gears here, and I want to talk about some other reporting mm-hmm. you've been doing. You've been quite busy this summer. You've been the point man in CBC's quest to declare Metro Vancouver's best neighborhood. And this is not just an internet thing. CBC is really pushing this mm-hmm. on radio and on television as well. Explain to me this whole best neighborhood tournament concept for someone who might not be aware. Yeah, so one thing that I've grown to just do and be part of it, whatever the heck is what I do for work, uh, is uh, the, is, bra- is these brackets and sort of these competitions where we go, okay, let's see if we can determine the best X. And so, you mm-hmm. know, like it started with the thing I did on the best Canadian TV thing, right? Right. Uh, and, and that's what it was, the TV thing. TV, the best English TV thing <laughs> right. as well, because I didn't want people on Quebec to say, you missed the, this show that <laughs> 85% of Canada has never seen. But, uh, you know, we did TV. We uh, Then I did uh, uh, Vancouver's unofficial ambassador. Uh, I did a thing on buildings, right? And mm-hmm. the fun thing about these brackets in my mind is, yeah, you get to determine what is the best with an online phone. You get people in fun arguments, but it's more the journey of going through and having these discussions mm-hmm. around the concept. So when it was Vancouver buildings, it was about architecture, right? And the different themes in Vancouver history of why things were built and what that said about Vancouver's status at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about uh, Canadian TV, you know, a lot of it was how sort of hokey some of it was, but it's like the messages it gave to people on how much it mattered to people that time so it's always about the destination to it right and the way to celebrate things about our culture that we always talk about and we always just have conversations but we don't really explore so for the neighborhood competition it's been wonderful you know all the fantastic people on our radio uh side of things jake costello the director who's been doing a lot of this vivian luck kathy brown i could name five or six other producers who have been finding these people, talking to these planners, going out in the community, and really giving people a sense of, uh, all right, why is uh, Pet Meadow so beloved by people in Pet Meadows, right? Why is Crescent Beach a place that people absolutely love? And the reasons are slightly different everywhere because Metro Vancouver from a geographical perspective is so unique because we Mm -hmm. have all these rivers and mountains and reasons that municipalities grew up. It wasn't just like one downtown and then suburbs all stretched out throughout. There's so many places with unique individual character that getting to dive into some of that and to engage in these fun conversations has been as much of the joy as determining, okay, well, what's number one? Yeah. Well, you certainly convey that. And I want to emphasize, like, you really do flesh out historical information, cultural information about these places. It's been really fun to watch. When you're putting this all together and your team is putting this all together, Mm -hmm. in your mind, what makes a good neighborhood? What are common threads that you're seeing that people say, this is a good neighborhood because of this reason and that reason keeps popping up? throughout this tournament i mean there there tends to be two types of good neighborhoods right like one is the super urban one right Mm -hmm. uh it's dense uh it's probably close to waterfront in some way it's got great parks it's Mm -hmm. got great restaurants it's very diverse if it has a couple breweries that's uh, awesome as well and then you have uh, your neighborhoods that the reasons that they're so beloved are you know they're stretched out. 
They're far <laughs> from the big city. They're quiet. Yeah. You know your neighbors. Uh, it has a real family atmosphere, right? And you're probably in one camp or the other in terms of what priorities <laughs> matter more to you at the time. Uh, I live in an apartment downtown and have ranked every brewery in Metro Vancouver. You can guess where I am. Sure. But uh, th- those were the two types that did very well. You know, the ones that were more sort of just in uh, the southeast corner of Vancouver or the middle of Surrey didn't do great. The ones that were on SkyTrain stations in Burnaby or Port Moody or Coquitlam didn't do great. Hmm. It was these ones that were sort of two different archetypes were the ones generally that uh, advanced. And so that was super interesting to see. And now we have uh, Mount Pleasant versus Steveston, which is mostly that. People do go to Steveston for touristy stuff, but it is more of a a suburban place for the most part. Mm -hmm. And Mount Pleasant, which is smack dab in the middle of the biggest city uh, and is just sort of like, the perfect vision for some people of what an ideal sort of mix of working class but also gentrified neighborhood, the potential of what that can be. Right. And that's the showdown. That's the final. That's the showdown. So we've had over 450,000 votes at this point, and uh, it's we're going to reveal it on Friday. We have some fun ideas. Friday, planned. August 28th. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but uh, again, you know, whoever wins, it's more about just, uh, it's the friends we made along the way. No, absolutely. <laughs> and I want to talk to you more about this idea of neighborhood as opposed to who wins. That's mm-hmm. what sort of interests me a lot more. Now you've determined these two types of archetypes. Mm-hmm. And that was actually going to be my next question is beyond geography, how do we group different types of neighborhoods? I feel like for a long time in real estate, the selling phrase was this neighborhood is the new Yale town. And that's how, that's how they would sell condos. Right. And so I'm just curious, like you've, you've have these two archetypes here. Is there anything else in terms of neighborhoods that maybe you would group them in, or maybe there's another plane where you would group different yeah, neighborhoods. Th- th- there was an interesting thing, to, and I wanted to do a store on this, and then it's just there was too much to do. But uh, <laughs> Andy Yan, the pr- pr- program director for SFU City Program, mm-hmm. uh, said it's like, look, most neighborhoods in Vancouver were built around a certain type of transportation, right? Mm. Uh, either the very first neighborhoods were around, you know, walking and horses, right? They had to be very dense and they had to be very easy for people to walk. Then you had streetcar neighborhoods, right? Mm. Uh, You think about Dunbar, you think about Mount Pleasant, right? You think Mm -hmm. about Vancouver, particularly these ones where it's a main street, it's like eight to 12 blocks of commercial stuff, right? And it's because the streetcar went down there, right? right? And that sort of set the template for the neighborhood. Then you have ones in the mid-century that are more about cars, right? More traditional s- sprawl, right? You have your strip mall in the middle or your mega mall as yeah. well, right? You also have in the mid-century ones built around the idea of co-op housing, right? Or unique t- types of housing models, which mm-hmm. is where the West End and South Falls Creek come in a little bit. And then you have the communities, the newer communities that are coming in that are based around uh, often SkyTrain stations, right? Or Node, right? Or set mm-hmm. development like Yale Town. And so these neighborhoods can coexist together, right? Or be side by side and have completely different backstories for that reason, right? It's right. why you think about downtown and you have Chinatown and you have Gastown and you have Yale Town and you have the made up neighborhood of Crosstown as I call it. <laughs> um, but they all have, and you have Strathcona and they're all different, right? In yeah. very specific ways where you walk two blocks and you go 
I'm in a completely different place. It's a different architecture. It's a different vibe. Mm -hmm. And it's all because of where that origin story started with them. And that's part of the fascinating thing, right? Because you're not only talking history there. You're talking culture. You're talking socioeconomics. You're talking demographics. Yeah. You're talking about why the political debates today are what they are there for different zoning conversations, for different crime conversations. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is neat, right? And anytime we can get into the nitty gritty of that through the process of having a various, some people might call it clickbaity, what's your favorite neighborhood. (laughs) That to me is a sweet spot of reporting and community engagement, right? Absolutely. Where you get something that draws people in intrinsically with the question like, what's the best neighborhood? Mm -hmm. And you go, all right, now that we're here, we're going to talk a little bit about all these things that otherwise you wouldn't. (laughs) I love that. And I have to ask you about North Van. Yes. Because that's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I was cheering for Deep Cove, yes. where I live now, but also Lower Lonsdale, Lynn Valley, you know, all contenders. And then I see Pitt Meadows. <laughs> and I'll be mm-hmm. honest, I'm sure Pitt Meadows is a great place, but I don't think I've ever been there. How did it do so well? How did it knock off all these North Van contenders? Was this the Cinderella story of the tournament? It was It was the Cinderella story. But basically what happened in Pit Meadows is a lot of people got behind it on Facebook, including the city of Pit Meadows itself, and p- pushed it. And so oh, you then they had, had big money, they AstroTurf had big, groups. Big Pit Meadows came in. <laughs> uh, and this happened. It's an online competition. You know, we talk about Bodie McBoatface still for a reason. Um, uh, and so at the end of the day, Pitt Meadows had a very dedicated base behind them. Lynn Valley did not. Lower Lonsdale d- did not. That's so Deep North Cove Van, d- too. Did not. Yeah, uh, they fought up against <laughs> each other. And then when it came down to, all right, you have to fight this separate municipality, they got you know, put your foot off the gas pedal. I mean, the nice thing at the end of the day, Pitt Meadows, because when we did Vancouver's unofficial ambassador, Connect the Crow one, mm-hmm. and the reason Connect the Crow one was because like eight or 9,000 people in America voted every round for Canuck the Crow. And they only voted for Canuck the Crow. Oh, interesting. And so at a certain point, I just went, he's going to win, no matter what happens. For this... there were a few thousand extra people in Pit Meadows that seemed to really, really care, but it didn't overwhelm the competition. You know, at the end mm-hmm. of the day, they did lose to Steveston in uh, the semifinals, and uh, it was and it was good natured, mm-hmm. and uh, it was, was it close. It was close, yeah. No, I mean at the end, it was like fifty-five, forty-five percent yeah. for Steveston there was the highest amount of votes for any of the competitions so far. Oh, wow. But uh, I mean, well, that angry North Van vote. Angry North. Well, <laughs> I think it out. Honestly, there became an anti an anti pit Meadows vote <laughs> where people weren't voting for Steveston so much as they were saying, I don't want pit Meadows in the final. I'm yeah. sorry. I love you, pit Meadows. <laughs> Well, we can't have this, right? And that's, uh, you know, I hope people on Pit Meadows took it in the good spirit uh, th- that you hope for this sort of thing. Sure. But it's, that's, you know, this is part of 
the fun and silliness of the internet. If you can tap into that and enjoy when something goes a little bit off center from what you're expecting and have some fun arguments, that's way better than 90% of the arguments Absolutely. that end up happening. Yeah. Right? Well, it certainly piqued my interest. And now I have interest in going to Pit Meadows and seeing what the fuss is about and why they love it so much and how they were able to organize all these people for the love of their community. I yeah. thought that was really cool. Go to Foamer's Folly. It's an excellent brewery. I can certainly vouch for that. And then you go down more to the waterfront. You can go, to, uh, if you like that, you can go to, uh, higher up and see some of the cranberry farms. And there's kayaking oh. that you can do on the Alouette River and as well. You know, there's... Because it's so big, you have all of sort of the quintessential BC things of rivers mm. and mountains and farming and outdoorsiness and hiking. But you also have at the center of it this sort of small town feel of 20,000 people. So right. it can be the best of both worlds. Yeah. You no, know, it's a little bit of a hike for those of us in downtown <laughs> Vancouver. Sure. But, uh, you know, everyone has their own priorities for living, right? I have to ask you, were there any other surprises for you throughout this tournament, whether that's early exits, places that did abysmally poor, just anything else that maybe caught your attention, something weird? Yeah, I think it was the SkyTrain stations all losing, right? Yeah. Uh, and because... In city politics, we talk so often these days about these SkyTrain stations and development and how these are going to be the new nodes, right? And mm -hmm. people are really working, at least if you're in the development industry, right, of saying this is the new way that people are going to live. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of these places that exist, I do quite like. Right. Uh, and part of it is because I don't have a car. Right. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I love Moody Center. Uh, I th Edmonds is a really interesting place to be around. Lower Lawnsdale isn't a SkyTrain station per se, but it's the same thing with the key right there. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and all these places that were on SkyTrain stations lost and lost big <laughs> and lost early. And, it, and it's a reminder that a big thing when it comes to what makes a good neighborhood for people is sort of the built-in time and equity that they have in this space, mm. right? It's about this relationship and connection with the land that has been there for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And all these newer SkyTrain stationed neighborhoods and nodes that we have, people really haven't built up those good feelings quite as much for them to matter to people emotionally interesting as much as even on the north shore right as yeah. much as the lynn valley as much of as a deep cove right yeah uh surrey central they've been working at that for 10 15 years it was crescent beach and it was cloverdale uh that uh, ended up doing the best in surrey right hmm. so it was from a reporting standpoint for me it was a good reminder of the values that people really have in these deeper set neighborhoods and that tension that is always there uh, for preserving what you have and changing it because you're a place people want to be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to accuse you of anything, no. <laughs> but I saw this conspiracy theory on Twitter Yes, and I want you to address it, mm -hmm. but I have to ask you about this. And I know that Following threads on Twitter is a great way to navigate the world. 
Is this just a marketing campaign for the real estate industry? <laughs> is is that what you are? You're a front man? Y- yes, I am. <laughs> all brackets and all rankings are secretly shills from companies that pay me off and say, Justin, we want you to spend hundreds of hours of your free time obsessively putting this thing together. And I mean, <laughs> it is. You saw that. Yes, I, yeah, right? and yeah. I, I rolled my eyes. And But it it is a, a type of thing where sometimes people will see these fun uh, debates and rankings and go, you know, why is CBC... First, they go, why is CBC doing this, right? And it's like, well, it's What's the agenda, man? And it's like, it's fully because I think these things are fun, and I think maybe (laughs) other people might think they're fun, and maybe we can have some fun and interesting conversations about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, some people just want... You know, if you're a journalist and it's a news organization to give these straight news and anything else is sort of weird or upsetting in some ways, right? <laughs> and I'm grateful that's a very small contingent of people, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think when, you know, people are critical in that way, like with the neighborhood thing of saying <laughs> that it was uh, just uh, in the pocket of – developers to just sort of show it and to laugh about it right but yep you're not going to please everyone when you do these sort of large debate type uh events right for programming yeah and just as a general rule if you are putting yourself on the internet you're not going to please everyone. No. And People will find a reason to get mad or upset with you. And I try and remind myself that every day. <laughs> <laughs> and that is what the mute button is for. Absolutely. Your reporting is so fascinating because you do cover areas outside of the city of Vancouver. And even as you've expressed here today, like it seems like you really enjoy learning the quirky histories and even the petty dramas like the District of North Vancouver Council and their pigeon issues. I'm not sure of anyone else who covers these non-Vancouver areas as consistently or comprehensively as you do. What is it that draws you to these different places? Because it would be very easy to overlook a place like Pitt Meadows and be like, ah, that's not sexy, nothing's happening over there. But you really delve into these different communities. And I think first it's important to remember that there are tons of great uh, journalists for community newspapers across Metro Vancouver and those places. And they're so underrated and so under-resourced. And uh, I just think so many of them do an amazing job, right? Absolutely. the, The thing is, only one out of every, like, eight British Columbians live in the city of Vancouver. Mm hmm And yet so much of how we talk culturally and politically about this province comes from that Vancouver perspective. Mm -hmm. And look, I live in a Vancouver condo and look out at Science World and yell at kids who are playing (laughs) soccer. I get it. But there's the the world that the vast, vast majority of British Columbians live in isn't exactly at Main and Broadway, right? Or Granville or Robson. And so mm-hmm. when we created the at CBC the local politics reporting position, again, one thing that when we had conversations uh, with myself and all of my bosses, we were all in agreement on was that it was important to report on local stuff happening everywhere in Metro Vancouver mm-hmm. because there is so much happening 
and the political culture of all these places is very different, right? West Vancouver is different from Port Moody. Port Moody is different from White Rock. White Rock is different from the city of North Vancouver. All these places have different conversations when it comes to zoning issues, when it comes to transportation issues, mm-hmm. when it comes to, to just who has been living there and why. And if you're not there regularly and you're not thinking about it and you're not talking to councillors and mayors and a story comes up and it's controversial, you're not going to be able to do it justice for the people who live there of going, yeah, they've got it. They have a decent handle on it. And I know sometimes I'm not going to get it right on every time I'm doing a story on Port Moody or West Vancouver or Victoria, right? Or or Abbotsford. But I hope that I've done enough research and I've done enough stories there and I've looked into things that I can have a somewhat decent idea of what's underneath the surface here a little bit Mm -hmm. so that the story speaks true to those residents. Sure. And I think if, yeah, when so much of the focus comes on just what's happening in the city of Vancouver, uh, you lose that. And that's part of the reason for the neighborhood competition, why Mm -hmm. I was never interested in finding out what the best neighborhood in Vancouver is. I mean, that's sort of interesting and we now know apparently it's Mount Pleasant based on the quadrant (laughs) but what's more interesting to me is getting everyone in the region involved and feeling like they're part of this regional conversation right and it's not just the people in Vancouver telling them what's important and it's all stuff (laughs) west of boundary (laughs) do you think Vancouverites and when I say Vancouverites I mean people who live in the city of Vancouver proper do you think they are oblivious to places outside of the city? I think... Unless it's on Instagram. Yeah. Then they go there for sure. I mean, I you know, I don't want to speak for any Vancouver, but I know that I can be, right, or was, mm-hmm. right? Like, me and my friends would talk about, like, the void, right? And it's like anything that was, like, east of Nanaimo and south of 25th was a world that we didn't really go to and understand. And, you know, the great thing about Vancouver and Metro Vancouver's there's so much to do and there's so much diversity and the types mm-hmm. of things that you can do that you can pick and choose, right? The parts of the region that you care about. And I think uh, certainly in Vancouver it's, you know, yeah, you can go to the North Shore Mountains, right? And you can do your hiking there and you can hang out downtown, but there's a lot out there and you I go let's try and have these discussions that are cognizant of that there is this big piece of the cultural conversation that we can at least attempt try to have mm-hmm. and knowing that me as you know a white dude that lives downtown and uh, hates physical activity most of the time <laughs> is not going to touch be able to touch upon all of that stuff yeah. but you know we're a big broad province and we're a big broad city and uh, hopefully we can try and reflect that as much as possible, especially when you have a platform to do so. Yeah. Tell me about your approach to journalism, because there is a certain quirkiness and humor that you bring to your reporting at the CBC, certainly on your online presence, and that's never at the expense of the quality of research and reporting. So just in general, I guess more philosophically, like, how do you view your role as a journalist? What's your approach? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, the, 
it's the type of thing where I try and remember that there's storytelling, right? And there's the information that you're delivering the audience. And there's also the person who is delivering that, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I always say is that if people think that they know the reporter and they understand the reporter and they get a little bit about what the reporter likes or dislikes or how they get to the information right or how they approach it, Mm -hmm. then they're going to trust it a little bit more, right? Hmm. And they're going to have that connection and they're going to, in a time like this, believe it a a bit more. And so for me, I go, when it comes to the approach for the stories themselves, it's the same as any good journalist in in this province, right? It's uh, you talk to people, you look in the documents, you try and research as much as you can, you do your best to try and reflect whether it's two minutes on TV or 600 words online or Mm -hmm. uh, a minute on the radio. What is this about? What's driving this conversation? Where is the tension point? And try and have the comp and try and have that story speak true in a real way that's not just a he said, she said sort of thing, but gets to the crux of uh, why does this matter and who might be in the right here, right? But beyond that part of it, of the getting the story and reporting it out. Mm-hmm. There's also the presentation part of it of I'm big on, you know, showing your work, right? Yeah. Uh, being audience, honest with the audience, being able to say, I'm not sure about this, or being able to say, no, this is exactly the case where this pigeon bylaw in North Vancouver is very weird because I've looked at every single animal bylaw (laughs) in Metro Vancouver and none of them have a thing explicitly for pigeons. So this is weird now. And so I think, you know, I try and do that with charts. I try and do that with graphs. I try and do that with absurd sides. I try and do that with, you know, meta references uh, to myself. I try and do that with just talking about cultural stuff so that when I have important information that I think is interesting and maybe unique and that I want to share with you that you're going to trust it a bit more that you're going to be open to listening to it a bit more and then I hopefully have maybe a bit more capital to tell you stories and to get you out of your comfort zone because we've built that type of connection mm-hmm. and certainly the journalistic work you do is incredible like it's it's well researched it's well thought out it is that presentation that I feel for me as a fan makes mm-hmm. it so unique and that's what resonates with me and probably with a lot of other people is it seems like you're just being yourself. Yeah. I mean, I'm being, <laughs> I'm, be, I'm, being a, I'm being a version of myself, okay. right? I think it, it's, you know, there's, I can't remember the article, but I heard this thing of where like Vince McMahon, who runs WWE, mm. yeah. once told to someone, it's like the secret for any of their characters is just being 110% of who you are, right? right. And so... Or at least elements of that, right? And so, you know, it's it can be strange because in real life, like, uh, you know, sometimes I'm way more cranky, right? Or I'm way more introverted. Um, uh, You're pretty cranky online I'm, sometimes. I can be, but it's... <laughs> 
it's i you know you try and like you you try and reflect uh, to who you are and you try to, to be to authentic but you try and do it in a, a way that is going to, to actually to, get points across to an audience right mm -hmm. uh and so you know there's some people that are too online right we hear that sometimes sure and uh, you know we all have that friend who overshares right um or goes on long die tribes and it's like th there can be reasons for that but yeah. at the end of the day as someone who's also a journalist right who has to have this connection with everyone it's like yeah there's certain things that i'm going to play up about my personality and who i am and there's other things that is just there's no reason to do that and uh, in a lot of ways you know there's just places that as a journalist it's not good to chat about all the time if you're trying to keep a trust for a broad sure. audience <laughs> You had a very personal blog entry earlier this year as part of Autism Awareness Day, mm -hmm. and it was a very vulnerable piece, and I think it gave me a deeper understanding of who you are, which can be a very scary thing to share with people. What prompted you to be so open and forthright about having autism, or as I learned, what is now commonly known as Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD. Yeah, and, and a few things, right? One of them is that, uh, you know, essentially, uh, I had had conversations with my mom before she passed, and uh, she said, I think, you know, it would be nice at some point if you were more public about this than just a few of your friends and family knowing. And I was sort of like, yeah, no, I agree. And when I feel comfortable enough with myself to do that, uh, I would like to. And at a certain point in my life, I was and did. So I went, okay, I'm going to do that. Uh, part of it too was being, you know, uh, I do so much obsessive ranking and listing uh, and, uh, you know, self-references and things like that, that frankly, at a certain point, not talking about that at least once and letting people know felt mm -hmm. that like I was hiding part of myself in a way that, you know, there was a couple times actually uh, during the election campaign where a couple candidates for political office sort of said, yeah, I sort of know you're on the spectrum. And I was like, well, I haven't shared, yes, but I haven't shared that with you. And this is sort of weird now. Um, they just brought that up? Uh, yeah. Uh, just, and you know, not a, not a th threatening th no, or anything, yeah. right? But it's just like, and, and so th the more I f figured, you know, it, it's important to sort of be an open book about this, right? Given sure. how open that I am uh, on everything else. And part of it was, you know, in a very small way to be able to say, um, Look, the thing about uh, a spectrum is that there's there are so many people with so many different uh, abilities and ways that, that that they have this condition. Um, but here's one, and here's what I'm about, and you see this fairly regularly. And if this helps you learn something about this, if you're a parent with a child uh, on the spectrum, if you're mm -hmm. on the spectrum uh, yourself, and me talking about this helps a little bit, uh, and if uh, maybe seeing that I'm doing something that I really enjoy helps you in some way, uh, and if seeing that the fact that I talk about the things that I talk about and I share my interests and people every week are you know grateful for that and mm -hmm. say they enjoy that uh, and to be able to 
show people that, then maybe that's helpful, right? Uh, and so it you know was a lot to talk about, but sure, I was yeah. happy to have done it. Uh, and uh, it, it's one of those things where you know it was still always part of my life before, and it still is to, today. And mm -hmm. it's but it, I'm glad to have done it. Well, I think it's really cool that you did do it. I didn't know about your mother. I'm, I'm sorry about to, to hear that. I lost my mom early as well. But I think it's really cool that you put yourself out there. Yeah. And that's important. No, I, I think it's – I try and, uh, you know, like I, I said, you if you try and be honest and you try and be an uh, open book to people uh, and if there are ways that you can do that to help in some small marginal way, uh, then th that's a benefit, right? Yeah. Uh, and if it's a benefit as well that I can be, be tweeting to online, okay, now I'm going to rank every block in Vancouver <laughs> and people sort of know where the joke is coming from and why I'm fully at ease at it, sure. then, th you know, that's a t t tiny nice thing as well. I want to talk about that for a second. Did you always have this proclivity towards highly detailed data-driven lists and rankings and collections because the work that you produce is very remarkable. Mm -hmm. Even that Disney ranking. Yes, the table of elements. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> was incredible. Were you just always drawn to data chunking in that way? Oh yeah. I was the when I was 10 years old, I was the statistician for my school's elementary basketball team. And <laughs> I would have these detailed sheets laid out with everyone's names and I would write the, it down and I had shot charts as well. So wow. I would put down whether they made it or not and then I would give them to the coach and these detailed spreadsheets and go, you know, this guy is only shooting two for seven from long range, but he's good inside you should get them to shoot there more and I was 10 and the teacher would sort of stare at me bug-eyed but go okay I guess this you is were cool. 10 I was 10 I like for a high school musical I memorized I was the assistant director for Les Mis I memorized every line of the musical hmm. I then to help the director ensure that everyone had sort of equal parts i gave sort of scores for the value of lines they were singing or characters <laughs> they were i'm not joking sadly okay this guy you've given him only one like four out of five key moment you should give him a couple more in the second act interesting um, uh, i would uh I would collect every single baseball card and hockey card known to man. Yeah. I mean, uh, there was all these sorts of things. And then, you know, one of the first things I did journalistically that uh, got me to notice was ranking the Heritage Minutes mm -hmm. of Canada, which was just something that I thought, well, this could be fun. Uh, I think it's interesting. Maybe I'll just put it out there. And people did find it interesting mm -hmm. and so i went up oh, like maybe there's a thing here right and if how I many heritage mints are there there are now about 95 there was okay. like 82 or something and what was number one on your list number one was uh the jacques cartier and sort of first contact with indigenous people okay and sure. uh the, the, basically the idea of the name of canada being a wacky misunderstanding right. and it was just done in that over-the-top heritage <laughs> minutes way yeah. where it's just like was there 
very was this a very bad thing for certain people and was the naming of canada itself sort of the beginning of a deep pattern of appropriation absolutely are we going to address this in this heritage minute nope (laughs) we're just going to have funny hats and weird accents and sort of spit through everything in 60 seconds yeah uh and uh, but just going, you know, the heritage minutes are, it's interesting. The newer ones, of course, are much more serious, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually touch upon in real raw ways part of the parts of Canada's history book that we didn't talk about for mm-hmm. so many years, at least in terms of a broad mainstream way. When yeah. it, and it's an interesting dichotomy when you look at the older ones, which are much more hokey and yay Canada, yeah. and the newer ones, it tells you a lot about the constantly evolving way that we're trying to tell the story of this country and whose perspectives matter and why and how we're trying to get that across. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is almost as interesting as any individual heritage minute themselves, though I'm a sucker for the Winnie the Pooh one, I gotta say. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, the way you just described the evolution of these heritage minutes struck a parallel with how you described developments in Metro Vancouver as well, like on this chronological... Mm -hmm. Yeah, no time period. That's that's really cool. That's where my brain goes, right? And I mean, we all have our frameworks for exploring concepts, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and, uh, figuring out why something is interesting. And for me, I go, let's look at the history. Let's look Mm -hmm. at the structures. uh, Let's look at how it was different when they did it here compared to then and why. Uh, And again, it's super neat to find that it's like, if I do that and then I talk about it, there seems to be people that are interested in it. And that I did not expect when I was a younger person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's what makes your lists and your rankings so incredible. And I really do want to stress, you know, there's so much research and it's so well thought out. But as you also alluded to earlier, there is this like clickbaity thing with lists and rankings. What is it about lists or rankings that we see, you know, top 10 reasons to not go outside today that we we have to click and find out what the list is and where the rankings are what is that like sometimes i joke that it's like i'm just aping buzzfeed in 2013 (laughs) i'm just doing it for like two and a half million people in one province but i think (laughs) it's yours uh, is much better than buzzfeed stuff like come on i put work into it yeah i care way too much about what every street in the city is named for (laughs) it matters Um, but i think the thing about uh our eyes are drawn to numbers, our eyes are drawn to ways of making these big complicated things around us sort of condensed in a way that we can understand them. Mm. Um, And I think when that's why listicles across all sections of sort of journalism uh, had a real run and continue to have a place, right? Um, uh, I remember the first time I did it for a policy thing where I was like 10 bills, the BC government passed this session and mm-hmm. I was working for Global at the time it was 2014 or something and I just thought on a lark well I'll do it as a listicle like I'll talk about each bill and I'll go into the nitty gritty of it like yeah. uh, I tend to but 
I'll do it like that because if I just sort of write 600 words and going, then government also passed Bill 33, the amendment to the <laughs> private security. Like yeah. people might not be, and I did it, and the story did way better than tons of the other online, than a hmm. lot of the other political stories for just legislative bills passing stuff that we had done. And my mind went, okay, so if I can get people into this world through a, a list, right, yeah. or a bracket, or a ranking, then uh, that's a small price to pay for the actual inf interesting information, to my mind, that they're going to stumble upon during this. Sure, yeah. I didn't realize that they were called listicles. I'm going <laughs> to use that term now. Mm -hmm. I also wonder how much of it is just like headlines. We like to read headlines. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, here's a headline that will take you to more headlines. There's so, <laughs> we like to click on that. <laughs> there's suction art to these things, yeah. right? And it's like, it seems every nine to 15 months, the algorithm changes, right? Sure. And the secret sauce of what drives people psychologically, right? Yeah. And so I try and be very agnostic about that sort of thing. You know, the, the point is to, the point is to get people, the point is to write a thing that is true or as close to true as possible and the point is to get people to read it and so if you can do that in a headline that is not gratuitous then that ultimately is extremely important mm -hmm. uh, and are there bad parts about trying to have to sum up an entire complex thing in, uh, you know, 20 words? Absolutely. But it's just like th that's part of what we've always had to do in journalism, right? Sure. And, you know, the, the, the metrics bear that out. Yeah. Justin, we're out of time, man. Oh, it was fun. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> You're a lot of fun. This is a formality, but how do people find you and not the other Justin McElroy? <laughs> where should they go for the CBC Vancouver? Just direct the yeah, listeners wherever you want they, them to they go. Should, they should go first to www.cbc.ca slash BC. Uh, I miss so many of them dearly because I've barely seen any of my co-workers in the flesh for uh, <laughs> six months, but we have such a wonderful team of journalists who have so many strengths different than I who put together great stories uh, and great TV packs and great photos. Uh, that's where most of my work is. You can also listen on the radio as well. Uh, and if you want to see me make fun of myself on a daily basis, I'm at twitter.com slash J underscore McElroy2. McElroy too? No, just just McElroy. J <laughs> okay. underscore McElroy, comma as well. <laughs> I was like, maybe I read that wrong the no. whole time. Maybe I'm following another Justin McElroy. There's an art. There's a artist in California who is the third Justin McElroy that sometimes gets lumped into memes about us. So oh wow! Maybe he's Jay McElroy too. <laughs> you guys have to get together at some point. There will be a summit. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, this was a lot of fun. Like I said, I'm a big fan of your work. Your work is compelling. I think you're a superstar in this city, truly. And the fact that you're genuine, you're positive, and you're just a cool guy. It, it inspires me to be a better communicator and to also just have more faith in myself and to really trust my instincts in terms of what I find interesting and trying to share that with people. So this was a real treat for me. 
I really do appreciate it. You're very kind. And like I was saying to yesterday uh, on Twitter, it's like if we're all going to be communicating and all going to be in a place where there's lots of negativity often, it's like we may as well try and make it fun when <laughs> we can, right? And a little bit more positive. So, And you do that your own way as well. And so thanks for that. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. People, he is the municipal affairs reporter for CBC Vancouver one of the best in the city, a true mensch. He is Justin McElroy, and I am Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>